I'd like you to turn back to that uh, passage which I read just now, part anyway of this uh, fascinating incident from the life of David in 1 Samuel chapter 25. It's probably or quite possibly an incident that you're not that familiar with. Uh, So this morning we will spend a little bit of time unpacking it and perhaps working through the rest of uh, 1 Samuel 25 so that we can understand what's happening. But I think we're going to see this morning that there is something very important happening here that has a resonance throughout the whole of the Bible and ultimately takes us to what we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the account here in 1 Samuel of David's life is a fascinating one. Uh, There he was anointed by Samuel uh, to be the king of Israel, but at a time when Israel, of course, has a king. It's Saul. And there is a fascinating playing out in in uh, in 1 Samuel of the lives of these two men. And at the point we uh, arrive at here in 1 Samuel 25, David is still a king in waiting and Saul is still the king. That's quite helpful because in the previous chapter, we read of a moment where it appeared that Saul, who actually hates David and wants to see David destroyed, it appears that Saul has been delivered into David's hands. And we don't have time really here this morning to go into uh, chapter 24, but if we did, we would find and see very clearly that David behaves with great dignity and great wisdom in response to that moment. You see, in chapter 24, out of the blue, quite suddenly, it seems, and unexpectedly, David has the opportunity to kill Saul. Saul is sleeping. And Saul is the one who's seeking to kill David. And so it does look in in chapter 24 as if God has delivered Saul into David's hands. In fact, that's exactly what David's men thought when they saw the situation. This is the day, they say to David, the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. So David, all you've got to do now is sneak up on Saul while he's sleeping and put an end to him and it will be an end to all your troubles and you can become king of Israel. But wonderfully we see in chapter 24 that David becomes deeply troubled. In fact, we read in Psalm t- uh, chapter 24 and verse 5 that David was conscience-stricken. He sees the opportunity to do something, but his conscience is deeply troubled. Now, his conscience is an informed conscience. There are times in, lives, in life when your conscience is troubled and my conscience is troubled. And we should always respect that. And often it is God's way of dealing with us and guiding us in life. But at the same time, we as Christians need to make sure that we have an informed conscience. That is, it's informed by the word of God. The more we understand of who God is, his works and his ways, and how he would have us live, the more our consciences can be informed. 
And so we discover there in that 24th chapter that David, conscience-stricken, speaks to his men who've told him, here's your opportunity. His reply to them is, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift up my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. As dreadful and wicked a king as Saul is, as much in meltdown, slowly unraveling, consumed with jealousy and fear and hunting David, Saul is, David recognizes a higher principle. For all of that, Saul is still the anointed of the Lord. And his confidence is that God will deal with Saul in his time, which of course is exactly what happens. I don't want to say really very much about that, but isn't it interesting how reading providence or what appears to be providential ordering things in life is not always as straightforward as it seems. We all know the account probably of Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the prophet saying, go to that great city and preach against it for its wickedness has come up against me. But Jonah runs away from the Lord. And when he arrives at the harbor, he finds just as he got there, there is a boat just about to leave in the opposite direction. What a wonderful providence. But of course, it was something which led him into great disobedience. So reading God's ordering of life is not always as simple as it seems. Providentially, it seems God had handed Saul into David's hands. Here's your opportunity. Stick a knife in him while he's sleeping. Put an end to all your troubles. But in our reading of providence, and we do need to read it, we need the wisdom of God. And so it is through the wisdom of God that David's conscience is troubled. Now, I think we probably all agree that the way David behaved in chapter 24 was very good. He is putting his faith and trust in God, that the Lord will deal with Saul. He's not taking things into his own hands, even though he had the opportunity. And he behaves with great wisdom and great integrity. We're now going to see in chapter 25 that things are really very different with David in this chapter. Now the chapter begins there in verse 1 with that very stark news. Now Samuel died and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. Briefly the whole of Israel is united. It had become very divided over the issue of Saul and David. But it does seem there in verse 1 that they are now united in grief. Grief does that, doesn't it? It can bring people together who otherwise perhaps may not be together. People rally round when they hear the sad news of someone who has passed away. I had a very sad phone call this morning from a neighbour of my mother's. And he was very distressed and he said, I'm awfully sorry, Philip, I've got some very bad news for you. And immediately I started thinking of my mother. Uh, but it wasn't. It was her next door neighbour. He's a lovely man. Been very kind to my mother. Had died very suddenly in the night. Neighbours rallying around. Everyone trying to be helpful. 
But the death of Samuel marks again another moment here in the history of Israel. There's vulnerability. Will God speak? So much reliance had been laid on Samuel as the prophet of God in those days. Well, what you see in chapter 25 is that there are three characters who really dominate the chapter. They're Nabal, his wife Abigail, and David. And we're told a little bit about two, which is helpful because we're probably not that familiar with Nabal and Abigail. Nabal is actually introduced to us in this chapter in a very telling way. Before we're even told his name, we're told certain things about his wealth. There it is in verse 2. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. And then we're told in verse 3, now the name of the man was Nabal. So it seems that the most important thing in this man's life, and in terms of his reputation and the way in which he lived, was his wealth. And that becomes very clear in the story. Verse 2, a certain man. Verse 3, his name was Nabal. But we're also told in verse 3 that he was harsh and badly behaved. The NIV puts it surly and mean in his dealings. Frankly, he wasn't the kind of person you'd want as a neighbor. A very selfish man. And if we read right the way on into verse 25, we're told, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. His name means fool. We were all told, aren't we, that our names mean certain things. And I don't think that's uppermost in parents' minds today when they name a child. Although it's lovely, we've just had a family start coming to the church in Llanelli and their little boy is called Gift. And I said to his mother, why is he called Gift? Because that's what he is, she said. He's a gift from God to us. But usually we give children names because we like the names. I mean, my parents called me Philip. They were about to move from Wales to England, so they thought we'd better give him a good English name. And so they called me Philip. I later on discovered that it means lover of horses. I've never sat on a horse in my life. The nearest I got to it was a donkey at Aberystwyth called Sparky. And we did get on very well, but that's about as far as it goes. But in the days of David, people were named often according to their character. And Nabal is called a fool. That's what his name means. And it seems that very much his behavior is like his name. Well, that's Nabal. But we're also told that he has a wife. Her name is Abigail. And in verse 3, we are told about Abigail that she was discerning and beautiful. In fact, that word discerning really means she was very, very intelligent. So there's a real contrast here. In fact, I, I called this uh, sermon Beauty and the Beast. There, there really is a massive contrast between Nabal, this surly, mean man, selfish and foolish in all his ways, and his wife, who is highly intelligent and very beautiful. And as we read uh, chapter, chapter, chapter 25, we discover that Abigail emerges in this story as a highly resourceful and capable woman. 
Whereas Nabal is obsessed with wealth and possessions, Abigail, it seems, is clearly very interested in people. And she is a godly woman. And her heart is set on doing what is right. So they really are a very unlikely couple, aren't they? But this is just how it is. Well, the third character, of course, we know very well, and this is David. But what we see in this chapter is the reminder that the best of men, and that is what David is. We're told that he was a man who had a heart after God. That chapter 25 shows us that the very best of men are nevertheless sometimes capable of great foolishness and a profound lack of judgment. As we've seen in chapter 24, David restrains himself and his men from taking a wrong course of action, trusting that God will overrule. But here in chapter 25, it is now David who needs to be restrained from a wrong action. And he will be, and this time by a woman. There's a fascinating moment of contrast in this chapter. In verse 6, we find that the word peace is mentioned three times. It's the greeting that David tells his men to give to Nabal. Peace be to you, peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. That's how it starts. But very soon it changes. And we read in verse 13, and there's another word here that appears three times. David said to his men, every man strap on his sword, Every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. So verse 6 is peace, peace, peace. But by the time you get to verse 13, it is sword, sword, sword. Well, what happens? I better tell you that because we didn't read the whole chapter. And maybe, as I say, you're not that familiar with him. That uh, what has gone on is that David's men had respected Nabal's sheep and shepherds at one time when they came to Carmel, where David and his men was. Now, simply, they're asking for a return favor in kind. And Nabal basically tells David's men to get lost. That's the sense in the language here in verse 10. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? It's, it's not that he didn't know. He knew. But what he's basically saying is, who on earth does David think he is? That he would make this demand of me. Well, as we know, David tells his men to go and destroy everything that belongs to Nabal. And his language is actually very, very striking in verse 21 and verse 22. Surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow had in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God so, so to the enemies of David and more so if by the morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. David is now enraged with real anger. The red mist has come down and he is seeking very violent revenge on Nabal. Well, Abigail, this intelligent and beautiful woman, Heals about, hears about this and very interestingly in verse 14 she hears about this through an anonymous character. In many ways, we could really be drawn to this person. One of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, what was going on. And what an important move and step in the story, isn't it? 
This person whose name is not mentioned in Scripture nevertheless stands at this point potentially between David and murderous disaster. Well, uh, Abigail hears, she understands what's happening, and she responds immediately and independently. Verse 18 speaks of her losing no time. What does she do? Well, as we read there, uh, she takes a whole load of food. There's a big reference to it there. You can look at that for yourself in verse 18. But it really is a, a real feast. And she puts it on the donkeys and she desires to go and speak to David and intervene. Verse 19, very importantly, the last part that we read here this morning tells us she did not tell her husband, Nabal. Now what happens is there is godly, wise talk that now takes place that is both theological and rational, sensible and grounded in the situation. And you see that between verses 24 to verse 31. Abigail, is when she meets David, she's very, very humble. She is genuinely respectful. And as she talks to David, the one who is uppermost in everything that she says to David is the Lord. We see it there in verse uh, 26. Now then, my Lord, speaking of David, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt, from saving you with your own hand. She, she, she tries to immediately start talking to David about the Lord. In other words, she's looking to give perspective now on the situation which has arisen, into which David has now become so angry. There's a lot more that she says. Ending there in verse 31 the second part of that verse, when the Lord has dwelt, dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Remember David, the Lord has been good to you. Remember that in all your dealings with other people. Well, a great concern is that David's eventual reign would not be tainted by rash bloodshed. She knows that David is going to become king. But she's intervening, not simply to spare the life of Nabal and the other men who David now wants to attack. But a great concern is that David's reign, when it comes to pass, is not tainted with bloodshed. Well, David's anger subsides in response to this amazing woman's approach. He calls off the hunt for Nabal. And he acknowledges in verse 32 that Abigail has been sent by the Lord. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. Abigail has, as verse 33 tells us, great judgment. And she has certainly saved many from certain death. So there is now this massive climb down as a result of Abigail's intervention and Abigail's wisdom by David in this situation. 
And ultimately, God deals with Nabal. Verse 38, and about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he dies. And it ends up that David takes Abigail as a wife. Now, here we are, sat in Kledach, many thousands of years later. And we might say, well, that's a fascinating Bible story, isn't it? It's very interesting. And Abigail was certainly a very wise woman, and it's important to be a wise woman or a wise man in these days. But is that all that we have here? How are we to understand this in our context? I think, first of all, we can make some general observations, can't we? Just the contrast between chapter 24, where David works with such integrity, he follows his conscience, his concern is to trust God, and now in chapter 25, this business with Nabal, it's a bit of a disaster, isn't it? And that's the reminder, isn't it, that the good Christian people can sometimes make very bad mistakes and bad judgments. One of the refreshing things about Scripture is that it doesn't airbrush out moments like chapter 25 and David losing his temper effectively with Nabal and potentially going into great disaster. It's a reminder that there is to be this sense of awareness of one another that as we walk the Christian life, inevitably in your life and in my life, there will be times when we come to bad judgments and maybe even make bad mistakes. The intervention of Abigail is also a reminder that often God's ways of dealing with us at times like this is to bring others into our lives, to speak into our lives. It's almost a reminder that we have a responsibility to one another. You might see another Christian doing something very, very foolish. Or at least that's how it appears. I think we have a responsibility to one another, if we really love one another, to follow Abigail's example, being highly respectful, very, very wise, but at the same time, bold enough and courageous enough to talk into one another's lives when we feel somebody is doing something extremely unwise. Again, one of the things, sadly, that we see in David, the first part of chapter 20, uh, 25, is that, of course, he is very stubborn. He is very convinced of where he is heading and what he is doing. Put on your swords. He won't be moved. I don't think it was very easy for Abigail to go into a camp of 600 men 400 of which have strapped on their swords. David is speaking murder. And to somehow have an audience with him and challenge him. And sometimes it's very difficult, isn't it, for us to challenge one another. We could feel highly intimidated. But it is a mark of her wisdom and maturity that she does this. It's also an opportunity for us to remember that stubbornness is not a virtue. Sometimes you meet Christians who can be very, very stubborn and somehow talk about it if in some ways it's a bit of a virtue. I'm fixed on this. Here I stand. That kind of thing. Well, we should be stubborn on some things. We should be stubborn on what the gospel is. We should be stubborn on the doctrine of scripture and all those things. 
but we should not be stubborn outside of those things. The other thing I think this shows us is that good people can always be helped. And at heart, David is a good man. And he is helped by Abigail. Abigail's wisdom and patience contrasts with David's foolishness, hot-headedness, and impulsiveness. She knows how to approach David. She does it quickly, before the situation escalates. She does it respectfully. She doesn't fight fire with fire. In verse 24, she said, the Lord, let the Lord, my Lord, let the blame be on me alone. She is very, very humble. She's wise. She takes a huge gift to David. But she does it honestly. She, she doesn't try and cover up who her husband is. Verse 25, pay no attention to that wicked man Nabal. And she's godly. It's not until Abigail speaks about the Lord that we hear anything about the Lord in chapter 25. But she is bold and she is pastoral in the way in which she speaks to David. Her great concern is seen there in verse 30 and verse 31. In verse 31 in particular, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause, or my Lord working salvation himself. That's a concern. He doesn't want to see David left with a legacy of grief that he went out and massacred Nabal and his men and then eventually realized it was the wrong thing. As hard as it is, this is a great kind of framework for us to approach one another when we think somebody is doing something very unwise. We need to act quickly. To do that, we have to get over our own fears and feelings. We must do it respectfully, otherwise we may make things worse. Certainly we should do it wisely, and we should do it in a godly way that is both bold and pastoral. Well, we can make those observations this morning, but I think there's an even more important observation we can make on this chapter and that is that clearly David needed wisdom. He needed the intervention of wisdom. And that's what Abigail brought. And that's what brought him to his senses and back from the brink of murder. And this theme of receiving wisdom, that we might be saved from foolishness, is a major biblical theme. The Bible makes it clear that ultimate wisdom that all of us need in life is never found in ourselves or even in one another. You may be blessed with a very wise friend, maybe a wise wife, as Nabal was, though he probably didn't listen to her very often, or a wise husband. It's a great thing, isn't it? Wise leaders in the church here you can go to for counsel and advice. What a blessing that is. But the greatest wisdom that we have is found not in one another, but in the Lord himself. How do we find God's wisdom? Maybe you're facing a bit of a crisis in life right now. And you're saying, well, I really don't know what to do. And I need the Lord's wisdom. How are we to hear and to grasp what is God's wisdom? Well, again, the Bible makes it clear. It is in his revelation to us. 
in the Bible, in the scriptures. Here is the wisdom that James says comes from above and isn't like the wisdom in this world. There are whole parts of the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, that speak about the wisdom of God. One of those is the book of Proverbs. In chapter 8, we read these words. To you, O men, I call out. I raise my voice to all mankind. You who are simple, gain prudence. You who are foolish, gain understanding. Listen, for I have worthy things to say. Goes on to speak a great deal more about wisdom in those terms. Wisdom as if it's almost a living thing. I raise my voice. That is speaking of the wisdom of God. But this theme of God's wisdom and his intervention into our foolishness is one of those things that we see most clearly in the Bible in the Lord Jesus. And there are great moments in the life of our Saviour when his wisdom is seen in remarkable ways. Remember that moment when he was just 12 years old and he was taken to the temple and after his parents begin the journey back to Nazareth, they discover after three days that he's missing. And Luke tells us that how when they went back, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, that's the teachers of the law, listening to them, asking them questions, and everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Luke goes on to tell us, not long after that incident, that Jesus continued to grow in wisdom and stature. So as he grew in terms of his physical development, his stature, he also grew in the wisdom of God. And then during his earthly ministry, there are moments where his wisdom is seen for what it is. Moments that defy the wisdom of the world. Again, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And those who heard him were amazed. Why were they amazed? Where did this man get these things? They asked, what's the wisdom that has been given to him? We come across passages like the Sermon on the Mount. They're in Matthew 5 to 7, where Jesus begins to speak to his disciples of what it means to live and to dwell and to behave in the kingdom of heaven. The wisdom of God is seen most clearly in the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we've been reminded already that there is a conflict then, often in our world, just as there was a collision in Samuel 25 between David's apparent wisdom, let's go and fight Nabal and finish him off, and Abigail's real wisdom, which was concerned for bringing bloodshed on his reign. Just as there was a collision between David and Abigail's wisdom, there is a collision in our world, and often in our hearts, between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of men and women, of human beings. The Apostle Paul, when he arrives at that great city of Corinth, he spends 18 months there preaching and teaching the good news of Jesus. 
And he leaves behind eventually a gathering of Christians, a church in that great pagan city. And a little while later, he writes to them. And as he writes there in the first chapter, he makes a series of important statements in the form of questions. Where is the wise man, he asks? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Now he's just asking, where are all the people who've got all the answers today? Who tell us what our values should be, what our ethics should be, what our morals should be? Where are the people who speak with great certainty about spiritual things? It's almost as if Paul is saying, let's line them up. And then he says this, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. What is Paul saying there? Well, he's saying what is absolutely always at the heart of the Bible. As we read it, we find ourselves challenged and confronted with values and ideas which are so different to our own. If you went out to the street today and stopped the first person you see and say, how do you get to heaven? They might say to you, oh, I wish you'd asked, how do I, how do I get to Llanelli? Uh, it's a lot easier to answer. But uh, eventually they might come round to you. And they say, well, I suppose you get to heaven, you've got to be a good person, haven't you? Lead a good life. Do the best you can. That's the wisdom of the world. We like that idea, don't we? It sits well on us. It's like the Pharisee of old in the parable Jesus told. We look at other people, you know, you open your newspaper or, or you look online and you see, hear these terrible things going on, and people doing wicked things, and you say, oh, I, I thank you, O Lord, that I'm not like that woman. I thank you I'm not like that person. I'm different, you see. And we believe in the end that, 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 well, you know, in the end, I'm sure God will look at my bad deeds and my good deeds. And, uh, and you kind of weigh them up. And, and, and if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, well, all will be well. And we like that. We like to think we're good people. That's the wisdom of the world. It's one of the most popular ideas today about how, as it were, when you die, you know you could go to heaven. Along comes the Bible. And makes it really plain and clear. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It makes no difference about your good deeds and your bad deeds. All of us are unrighteous before God. That's the wisdom of God. And it's like a collision. Just as, just as David's wisdom had to collide with Abigail's wisdom. And it was a collision of rage against wisdom. Fury against grace. As we turn the pages of the Bible, we hear things initially that challenge us deeply and we don't like them. They make us feel oppressed, maybe. They make us feel angry and we squirm under what we're hearing. But this is the wisdom of God that the Bible tells us is wisdom to make us wise unto salvation. You see, 
the wisdom of God is outside the realm of human wisdom. Our thinking, that's why Paul says there to the Corinthians, where's the wise man, where's the scholar, where's the philosopher? He's not against these things. He's not against people thinking about life and the universe and all the rest of it and debating these things. There's nothing wrong with that. But at the end of the day, says Paul, as you do that, you will always come to the wrong conclusions because you need the wisdom of God. Why do we always come to the wrong conclusions? Well, it's because we're sinful. And sin affects the way in which we think. And without God's wisdom, we will always come to the wrong conclusions. Wonderfully, in that same first chapter to the Corinthians, Paul says, the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Ultimately, in the Bible, we see the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ. So Paul was able to say to the Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Boy, was it that. What, what's your message, Paul? You need to put your faith and trust in Jesus of Nazareth, who came into our world as one of us, absolutely human, but was all and is all the time absolutely God. Imagine people starting to listen. That sounds good. And he lived this life that was perfect. Well, that makes sense. And then the Romans crucified him. And at which point all the Jews say, oh, forget that. Our Messiah, when he comes, will come with great power. The thought of him being crucified on a Roman's cross, well, that's just ridiculous. And the Greeks, when they heard that, they said, well, we, we want a great idea, which will bring together all the ideas we have about the universe and distill them into one cohesive form. That's what we want. But you're telling us We've got to put our faith and trust in a chap who worked in a carpenter's shop and just had a few followers, was often in trouble with the authorities and again died on the cross. That's a bit like your friends, isn't it, today? Because you get the same thing there. And you start talking to them about your faith and, and you say, look, you, you really need to work and understand who Jesus Christ is. And they say, well, I, yeah, it's, I'm sure he's really important. Major figure, isn't he, from history. And, and so many people have been influenced by his life. And so they say, well, what can you tell me about him? And you start to tell them about Jesus and they're interested. And then you say, but he died on a cross because of your sins. And by that death, he can forgive you and, and, and bring you to God. At which point, no, I think I'd rather trust myself. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But, Paul goes on to say, to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And friends, that is who he is. He is both the power of God and the wisdom of God. That death outside Jerusalem's city's walls in great weakness 
and in utter and complete humiliation is where we see the power of God at work. For in his death, as one theologian put it, we see the death of death. We see hope. Like this neighbor of my mother's who they found dead last night, suddenly, 72 years old, gone like that, no warning. You say, what if something like that happened to you? Where would I be? Such is the power in the death of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago that if your faith and just your faith is in him, that moment would be an amazing moment of your entry into the glory and eternal wonder of heaven forever and forever. The power of God. People may despise the cross. You may think it has no place in our world today. It's only at the cross, ultimately, where the power of God is seen most clearly. And here is wisdom. That if you put your faith in Jesus, he saves from eternal death and brings us to eternal life. David needed Abigail's wisdom. Absolutely. You need the wisdom of Christ. And I do too. And I hope today that you are not so wise in your own eyes that in the end you become a fool by not putting your faith in Jesus Christ alone as your Lord and your Saviour.